And uh, just a little heads up on, on the healing rooms last Wednesday night was awesome. It was really, really powerful. Uh, Eric and I ministered to a woman from Wolfboro. Uh, she has Lyme disease, and of course, they have any number of things that act up with her. And um, so we were just praying for her and, you know, keeping my eyes open. And all of a sudden, I see her doing this. And I says, there's something going on with your hands. And she's got this big grin. She says, what are you kidding? She said, I haven't been able to do this for 20 years. My joints were so swollen. I haven't. She had to change all the doorknobs in her home to levers because she couldn't close her hand around a doorknob. I said, well, we got doorknobs on the ladies' room. She ran over there. She turned it this way, pushed it open, pulled it, turned it that way, pushed it. And she's laughing, laughing, laughing. It was so awesome just to see God uh, do that. So uh, good stuff happening with the School of Kingdom ministry. Uh, Keep that in prayer. That's just going to, I think, be a, a real fueling of the move of God in this city. As it, Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. Consider that. We'll be graduating in May and looking for sign-ups for September. We'll be doing it again with a whole new group of second-year students ready to help out and facilitate, so it'll be good. Anyways, uh, earlier this week, I was on the phone in a conversation with a friend of mine in Denver. He had recently returned from Cambodia representing the church he works for, which is starting a rescue mission in Phnom Penh for victims of child sex trafficking. And uh, I had just kind of caught wind of the fact that he had been there. He was just there for two days, but I wanted to know what his experience was. You all know what it did to me, you know. And uh, so I connected with him. And somewhere in the midst of the conversation, he asked, Tell me, Pastor, how close to the end do you think we are? You know, I, I th- think it was in context a pretty appropriate question with the brutality of this the sex industry and what's going on there. Uh, we went on to discuss the multitude of indicators that seem to be screaming into the hearts of those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying what the signs of the times are indicating, and what creation itself is groaning to express as it waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Certainly we have seen those things that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, verse 6. Jesus is speaking, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Certainly we've seen nations raging against nation in war over the past century. The Cold War after World War II was two generations of rumors of war. Do you remember that? Exercises as kids learning how to get under your desk in case an atomic bomb goes off in your city. Go under your desk, right? That'll help. (laughs) Nice wooden desk will protect me. (laughs) It's just so you don't see the flash and know that you're done. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) 
Are we a gullible group? Huh? <laughs> yeah. We have seen the earth groaning with earthquakes, tsunamis, droughts, and famines. Our oceans are being depleted of fish, and our air is being spoiled through pollution. Everything seems to be screaming, it's close, get ready. But Jesus said, these are just birth pains, preparatory contractions indicating the big push is yet to come. But he goes on from there with that great transitioning word, then. In verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the ones who endure to the end will be saved. This is more than just an intensification of the dynamics that are already taking place. This is a dynamic shift, a paradigm shift. You see, the first series of these events are earthly expressions or responses to the evil of this age. But when the then happens, the dynamic shift from the earthly to the heavenly, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. This is a direct reflection of the groanings of heaven's community of the queries of those who have gone before us, the heroes of the faith from ages gone by who are petitioning the king of glory for relief for the bride of Christ and the redemption of all creation. Listen to this in Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I love the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. How Jesus can take what appears to be something so destructive, so heinous, so horrendous, and work it for good and receive glory from what was meant to be an assault against him, his church, and the cross of Christ. I'm sure some of you have by now figured out that I'm referencing the most recent atrocity committed by ISIS the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians in Libya. I was overwhelmed by the news of the event and found this article, in, in researching it, I found this article that gave a better expression to any feelings that I have than I could myself. So I want to invite you to sit back and listen and perhaps connect with what I've connected with 
and have your ears and heart open to what the Spirit is saying. Now, the woman who wrote this article, she's obviously a pastor. I don't know who she is. She didn't put her name to the article. But she starts, a man turned to me last week when we were on a plane about 30,000 feet over the earth. He sat in C-18 and I sat in D-18. And he turned to me and said four words. Everybody's in. Love wins. I had an open Bible in my lap. And you could hear the engines under us like you could hear how the whole world's moving, how the whole trajectory of everything is moving. Sometimes it feels deafening. It can be heard, it can be hard to know how to hear. On Sunday, we come home from our little country chapel after being bent over the word and sharing big pots of soup and sharing our imperfect battered hearts together and us all just being messy and scared and broken down and reeled together around some real hope. We saw it right after we'd gone home, after we got home from breaking the bread and taking the wine and the astonishing healing of all us messed up imperfect people coming to the very large table and remembering the cross and swallowing down the memory of the miracle of his grace. We saw it right after we'd walked in the door, took off our coats, 21 men in their orange coveralls kneeling in the sand. And 21 men wrapped completely in black, ISIS, standing behind these kneeling Christians with what they were heralding as their message signed in blood to the nation of the cross. I stumbled to find a chair to hold on to something. Who in the world are the people of the cross? Who are they? I want to read a letter to you. It's very brief. From 1999 is the postmark. I've saved it. It's addressed to the people with the cross. <laughs> Laconia, New Hampshire. This letter came to me about a month after Bike Week in 1999. We had set up a tent next to the Hells Angels. And we dragged a 12-foot cross into the drive-in theater area that the Hells Angels controlled. And I got to talk to this woman who was a prostitute brought up from Connecticut. I led her to Christ. Dear people with the cross, I saw you at Weir's Beach in Laconia. It's the first time I've been to New Hampshire and saw lots of stuff. It was easy to get lost in the crowd, if you know what I mean. On our way to New Hampshire, the people I was riding with stopped to eat at a place for bikers and that gave free food. They were people like you. You Jesus people have very nice faces, like the man who gave me your paper telling about foolishness. Anyway, there was more of your people playing music about being ready. Good music, too, about Jesus. I remembered a long time ago about a story about Jesus meeting a girl at a well, and he knew, knew her really well, but
but he didn't judge her. But I think he really cared about her in a nice way. I think he would have had a face like you people. Anyway, I wanted to thank you for the paper and the food and for being nice. I wondered if your church people are like you. I wondered if somewhere people like your Jesus face people are real. Next year, if I make it to New Hampshire, will you be there? I don't know if you will be. Do you ride motorcycles? <laughs> Well, I have to go. I, I'm glad I saw you. Thanks. P.S. I, I like this P.S. I think this is awesome. If I find where that story is about the girl, I'll tell you where it is and send it to you. <laughs> Susan Barton, Hartford, Connecticut. Who are the people of the cross? It's us. It's you and I. woman goes on in her writing. It's Sunday, the day after Valentine's, and maybe we're all just people of love. You know, everybody's in, love wins. Because, yeah, I get it. Who wants to be people of the cross? The cross is offensive. The cross doesn't look like love. It doesn't look like the Hallmark Channel. It doesn't look like the happy set of a breezy talk show. It doesn't look like the smiling poster child of the positive attitude movement. Yeah, just go ahead and ask the 21 Coptic Christians who knelt before ISIS, who are waiting to be beheaded, for the heads to literally roll because they are people of the cross. And yeah, the cross may not make you friends with ISIS or self-help gurus or any of the feel-good channels or the people down the street, or across the lunch aisle, or across the office. The cross looks messy. It looks bloody. It looks ugly. And the cross has been shamefully used like a sledgehammer by the religious instead of like a lifeline unashamedly held out by the rescued. You have to excuse me. Ears plugged. <laughs> kind of been that kind of year for me. I do a lot of crying these days. A lot of crying. So yeah, maybe somewhere along the line we just wanted to become people of inoffensive love, not people of the offensive cross. She makes a note to herself, how have I done this? But Jesus is the word, the logos, the logic of the universe. And he determined that love only has logic, only has meaning when it's in the form of a cross. 
Love is about ferocious suffering and gracious sacrifice, and the root of love is the foundation of the cross, and the dictionary that defines love is a cross, and love has no language, no meaning, no interpretation without the cross. God is love. God is the essence of love, and he chose that the essential expression of love is the cross. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his Son, his one and only Son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is how God shows and shapes his love for us, through the cross. This is how we shape and live our love, through the cross. It will always be offensive to say that our love is not enough. It will always be offensive that his pure, blameless, cross-shaped love is necessary to take all my messiness and brokenness and sin. So yeah, it may not be popular to say it, but medicine, exercise, and hard things aren't always popular around here either. And just because something may not be politically correct don't mean it ain't correct. Any kind of love that lacks the iron of the cross in it is anemic love. It won't make you flourish. It won't let you really live. It isn't fully healthy love. Love without a cross has no backbone. Love without a cross can't stand because it's only about feel good and not about being made new. So why would the rescue just hold out hot cross buns, pop psychology, and Pop-Tarts to the drowning all around them when they could humbly hold out the actual lifeline of the cross that literally saves? A rope looks offensive if you think someone just threw you a noose, or it can look like your one and only lifeline to save you from drowning, to pull you up into the dry land of the really living. And if that cross is something that literally rescues you and lets you really live, then it's something worth dying for. People are dying for the faith we take for granted, that we take and hide under a bushel, that we take and paint vanilla so we don't get persecuted. Are we people so humble? Are we people who humbly take up the cross and take our faith seriously or people who seriously take and hide our faith under humble bushels? She asked herself another question. I could sit at the table and weep over my own sin. Isis and they are Isis said they are chopping off the heads of those that have been carrying around the cross illusion in their heads. I feel like someone banged on a cymbal somewhere and I can't stop the reverberation. 
They're chopping off the heads of those that have been carrying around the cross illusion in their heads. The world feels like a million impossible tons. My lungs feel heavy, like I can't breathe, like I can't move for the weight of the glory. Who carries around the cross in their heads? Who lets the cross shape them, lets the cross become the pattern of their mind, shape their neural pathways, form and inform their thinking? Who carries their cross? Who picks up and carries their cross? That they would die for carrying the cross in their heads, in their hearts, for literally embodying the cross. Maybe only the ones who carry around the cross of Christ in their heads are the only ones who really have love of God in their hearts. I remember somewhere in the mid-90s, myself and Tom Clare and Roland Tomingo went to Sudan. And we took a shortcut through <laughs> Egypt to meet up with Dr. Naji to try to rescue some people out of a Egyptian village in the wilderness that was under persecution, that were being martyred. By the time we arrived, the whole village had been slaughtered and burned to the ground by the Egyptian army. Naji arrived, we arrived by plane, Naji arrived from the wilderness, the desert, by train with another man who was a worker for Voice of the Martyrs. I remember seeing him and thought, boy, it must have been a rough trip. He was frail and gray and uh, ashen and very weak. He was sitting at Naji's, Dr. Naji's mother's home and could <gasps> And in conversation, we found out he was dying of lung cancer. And he only had a week or so to live. His wife asked him, is there one thing you would like to do before you die? And he said, I want to rescue a mounted Christian. He never saw his wife again. He died in Naji's mother's home because he had the cross in his heart and in his head, and he was willing to lay down his life. Political correctness may say, follow me and maybe we'll find some truth. Jesus humbly pleads, pick up your cross and follow me. I am the truth. Political correctness may say, only talk of love and no messy cross and maybe we'll find one of the many ways to the good life. Jesus quietly offers, come to me at the cross, all of you who are heavy laden and burdened and weary and messy. I am the way to the eternal good life. Political correctness may say, follow me and maybe we'll find many doors that lead to God. Jesus humbly reaches out, I hung on the cross, I am the door. Follow me. Everybody's in who opens the door with the key of the cross. Love wins because the cross wins. The cross wins. The cross frees the oppressors and the oppressed from oppression. The cross redeems the rejected and remakes the undone. 
The cross is God's way of mending our broken hearts and breaking his heart in two and saying, me too. God is saying, me too. Love wins only because the cross wins. Rip the cross out of the heart of love and you'll kill the power of love. You could read it in the eyes of those 21 kneeled Christians about to have their heads severed from carrying around the cross in their heads. For people who are stumbling toward ruin, the message of the cross is nothing but a tall tale for fools by a fool. But for those of us who are already experiencing the reality of being rescued and made right, the cross is nothing short of God's power. That's what we get to decide and carry home, carry in our heads, carry around in what we read, what we watch, what we support, what we cheer. Cheap plastic commercialized feel-good love or wood-passionate cross-made new love worth humbly laying down our lives for. She asked herself a question, how have I failed in doing this? When I read each of the 21 men's names out loud, it's like a pulsing refrain in my veins. I want that. I want to be counted as the people of the cross. Carrying around the cross in my head because that's the only way there will be real love in my hands and feet and heart. Whatever the world news may say about the brave martyred 21 Christians who were beheaded by ISIS, his word speaks the truth of the 21. The world was not worthy of them. Hebrews 11:38 However, any very real evil thinks it's winning and overcoming. His truth declares that the 21 are the overcomers, that the 21 overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when they faced death. And wherever the people of the cross are, we will remember every one of the 21's names because they did not forget him or forsake his name. We will pray for their families because they are our family. We will pray for their murderers because the cross that's rescued us is big enough, powerful enough, loving enough to rescue anyone who reaches for its redeeming grace. The cross says that the executioners will not ultimately triumph over the executed. And the cross says that the executed will not ultimately triumph over their executioners. The cross ultimately says that the one who will triumph is the one who was executed first himself on a cross for the executed and the executioners and ushers in an upside-down kingdom of real love and new rightness and deep wholeness and pure justice that singularly has the power to break hate. The cross doesn't polarize with bravado power. It upends with serving bona fide love. So the people of the cross will pray that our faith in our Savior is worth laying down a life for. We will pray that we don't live lives of cheap grace 
but of costly Christianity. We will pray that the 21 sacrificed lives will stir us to live sacrificial lives. And the people of the cross will weep prayers for the persecuted church because we are bound to them through the cross of Christ. And because the cross of Christ, they are unbound, undefeatable, undaunted, and unforgettable. When the voice of Isis warns on that video, his voice brash and brazen in the wind before the 21 about to be martyred, safety for you crusaders is something you can only wish for. It's hard to swallow the burning ember rising in my throat because he's right. Too long the people of the cross have crusaded for safe lives. Too long we have wished for comfortable lives. Too long we have wanted easy lives of vanilla love instead of cross-shaped love. But the people of the cross, we are done with safe lives and comfort instead of living dangerous lives that speak of the comfort found in the real love who hung on the cross. When the day is done and the last of the lights are turned out and my head hits the pillow, all I can think of is the faces of the 21 and their surrendered heads, their heads carrying the full reality of the cross and how we're on the brink of Lent and what would it mean to repent, how the people of the cross have let themselves be chained to petty and purposeless things instead of praying for the persecuted church in chains, how the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How once, when I was little, I tried to behead a dandelion in full orb. And if you behead a dandelion in full head, you send a thousand more bravely out on the wind. I'm going to close with a little video piece, and then we're going to call you to the Lord's table. Jim, would you and Paulette come and begin to prepare the cups, please?